The passage is Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 10. I'll read it if you can follow along. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For ye have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for guiding us and leading us. And Lord, I pray that as we hear this sermon, Lord, that you would speak to us individually. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to respond to your word and that it would apply to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come down and that it would not be my words that are speaking, but it would be yours. And I pray that our hearts would truly be open to understand what you are trying to, hear, what you are trying to say today. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Today's uh, sermon is called Manna in the Wilderness. These days, uh, all of my friends are getting married. That's all I wanted to say about that. No, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because when I'm invited to a wedding, when, I, when I'm able to go and, and participate, uh, it's, so, it's so exciting to see because I look at two things. I see the groom and I see how much uh, anticipation he's in as he's waiting there. I see, I, see, I see how his legs, he's making sure not to lock up his knees or else he's going to pass out, right? And on the flip side, I see how everyone stands up and the bride walks in. And she is just so, so happy. And I hope that one day, at my own wedding, that I would be as happy as I walk down the aisle in my white suit. No, no. I just, I'm just joking, you guys. None of you guys laughing, though. Okay. Um, now, what's interesting, what's interesting is that statistics show that there are two points in, in a marriage where couples say they have the hardest time in. Two points after the wedding ceremony that couples say are the most difficult for them. The first is one that we may have heard before. It's the seven-year period, right? We've heard that term, the seven-year itch. It's when a couple gets too comfortable with one another and they begin to fight or they begin to kind of go somewhere else or, or whatever. Now, the other point in marriage that couples say is the hardest is within the first two years of marriage. Now, for many of us who aren't married, 
that can seem really strange. For those who are married, that may not seem strange at all. You see, there was a survey of married couples, and they said that the reason why the first year of marriage was so difficult was because it was the first time where they had to realize how selfish and self-centered they really were. Because for so long, they were living by themselves, For so long, they were just taking and taking and taking, whether that's from their parents, whether that's from their friends, whether that's from different areas. And for the first time, they had to give. For the first time, they had to sacrifice. And for the first time, they were living with someone who saw all of the good and all of the bad. Now, for those of us who aren't married, there's a light at the end of this tunnel that I just talked about. Because what these couples said is that if you're able to get through these trials in the beginning, that what happens is that it actually makes the marriage sweeter. They say that the difficulties make the relationship stronger in the long run. See, church, in the book of Exodus, what we see is that the Israelites are shown one of the greatest displays of love from God. It is one of the greatest miracles of the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea where God is saying, I am committed to you as a public proclamation of his love. But after they're freed, they are led directly into the wilderness. And this was a journey that if you calculate from Egypt to Canaan should have only taken about 11 days. And yet it took them 40 years. And what we see is during this time in the wilderness, it is one terrible thing after another. We see, church, the reason why God allows the time in the wilderness is because he desired a stronger relationship with his people. The reason why he was willing to sacrifice 40 years in the beginning was because he wanted a lasting bond that would be stronger than before at the end. You see, if the ten plagues were a proclamation of his love, then we can say that the wilderness is that first year of marriage. And church, what I want to emphasize is that this is the process of our Christian walk as well. We think that God was powerful in the beginning, that he did all this great stuff for us at first, but now things are completely difficult, that it seems like he's far away, that he doesn't hear our cries. We think that in the beginning his presence was so tangible, but now it seems like he's a faraway thought, that things have become so dry. But you see, God, he brings us into the wilderness. There are times when he takes a step back. There are times when trouble occurs in our lives. And the reason why is because he wants us to see our selfishness and our sin. It's a way to grow us for the future. Church is only by seeing the depths of our sin that we're ever going to see the heights of God's love. It's only by seeing the depths of how terrible and how sinful we are, that we will ever see how wonderful and how great God's grace is that covers all of that.
Romans 5.20 says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. No matter how bad your sin is, God's grace covers that. But we're not going to realize how big God's grace is until we realize how terrible our sin is. You see, the Israelites, they were in the wilderness to show the true state of their hearts and for them to finally turn to God. And man, that wilderness it, it exemplifies that quote, the one that many of us have heard before from the Dutch Christian, she's a watchmaker, Corey Ten Boom. You can never learn that God is all you need until God is all you have. And so what I want to do today is just simply look at two things. First is that God, he was the one that led the Israelites into the wilderness. And second is that in, it's in the wilderness that God provides. Right? Now, first, God leads the Israelites into the wilderness. Verse 2 says this, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You see, church, the wilderness is the desert. It's a place where people cannot live and vegetation cannot grow. And even in our modern age, when you think about the desert, let's say the Sahara Desert or anything like that, you never, you never hear about a community of houses being built there. You don't hear about the HOA or whatever, making a place in the desert. No, it's because even to this day, with modern technology and all that's happened, we still cannot grow anything in the desert. It's not meant to sustain life. And so the Israelites are asking this question because they're in there right now. They're in the wilderness. And they're looking at Moses and they're saying, why are we in the wilderness? That's a good question, right? Why are they in the wilderness? And the answer is because God led them there. That's it. For the Israelites, they didn't accidentally wander into the wilderness. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know that from the beginning, there was this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it led the Israelites step by step. They were going place by place simply because they were being led by God. And the reason they're in a place with no food right now, and the reason why in the next chapter you see that they're in a place with no water, the reason why they're in dangerous place after dangerous place is because God had led them there. All of those things, every part was a part of God's ultimate plan. It's uncomfortable because we know that even from the very beginning that when they were celebrating the exodus out of Egypt, that even when they were celebrating out of the Red Sea, that even when all those things were happening, God had planned for them to be in the wilderness. And so if that's the case, the question becomes, why would God lead them in the wilderness? You see, church, the answer is in the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy, what we know is that it's almost this parallel book with Exodus. 
Because right before Moses dies, he, he's writing about all of the things that have happened as his reflections, and, and his reflections are the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 8, it says this, Remember how God fed you in the wilderness with manna, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Now, other translations say this, that he might humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Moses is saying that the reason they went through the wilderness, the reason you are going through the wilderness, is because you simply didn't know what was in your own heart. What we know is that the wilderness is a time of training for the Israelites. It was a type of boot camp and education. It was meant to bring out all the selfishness. It was meant to bring out all the pride. It was meant to bring out that sin so that they could repent and turn to God. And church, even though 40 years may seem like such a long time for us, it was the exact right amount of time for the Israelites. And God had planned that from the very beginning. You see, this is the true condition of the Israelites' hearts. And what we think is that because they were crying out to the Lord for salvation for so long, they were asking God to save them, that, man, their, heart, their hearts must have been in the right place. Of course, they were just worshiping God for who he was. And yet the moment that there is no food, the moment that they're in the wilderness, the moment that things become difficult, it says in verse 3, the people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for ye had brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God, I had expectations for what you would do. And even though my time may have been rough then, my time is so much worse now. And so, God, I don't even know if you're real because you have not fulfilled the expectations that I have for you. See, church, when it seemed like God didn't fulfill their expectations, all they could think about was how good slavery was back then. Because God didn't bless them with food. Because they didn't get that health and wealth from God. They immediately turned their back on him. And they wanted to go back into slavery. See, church, what happens for so many of us is that when we are in times of wilderness, when we are struggling, when times of difficulty comes up, what Satan will try to do and what the world will try to do is pull you back and try to tell you how good things were back then. It's going to say, you know that thing that enslaved you before? That metal yoke that was on you? It was actually much lighter than it is now. That thing is not as bad. Before you were full. You see, God who didn't fulfill your expectations, that's why you should come back to me. And that's why it's so dangerous that in times of wilderness, that in times of bad situations, you need community and you need the word of God. Because what's going to happen is that those addictions that you had before, the things that you were freed from before, are going to look so much more enticing to you. You see, church, this 
passage is here to warn us and to encourage us. It was easier for the Israelites to turn back into slavery. But it needs to also be at the forefront of our minds that God was the one who led them there. And if God was the one that led them into the wilderness, that if God was the one that led them into the difficult time, that if God was the one who led them into that place of desperation, then God has a plan for the future as well. That he has led you in, he will lead you through. Do you get that? He has orchestrated it all into his plan. That's the God that we believe. That if he has orchestrated the plan from the very beginning to save Moses, to bring him into Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to change Pharaoh's heart, that he would orchestrate even this moment as well. He is not a God who forgets one thing or remembers another. He is not a God who lets things fall through the cracks. He is the God of everything. And if he remembers every piece of hair on your head, if he remembers to save even the one sheep that is lost, won't he also remember and plan for the most difficult situations of your life? He has orchestrated this into his plan and he is able to use it for his glory and for our good. That's the first point, that God has led the Israelites into the wilderness. Second, is that God provides in the wilderness. You see, even though God leads us in the wilderness, and even though it may seem very difficult, and even though it may be the most trying times of our life, it says that he will provide for us there. He does not leave us alone, but he gives us the means, and he, gives us, he tells us how to flourish even within the most difficult times. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Here we see that God hears the cries of the people, that he has led them into the wilderness, and that even in here, even in this place, he provides another miracle. He tells Moses that every day bread is going to fall from heaven and it's going to fall like rain. And what's important to see here is that there is a contrast being shown. And the contrast that's being shown is between the wilderness, the desert that they're in, and the Egypt that they want to go back to. And the reason why there's a contrast is because the wilderness is a desert, and the desert is known for being barren, and is known for nothing being able to be grown there. It's known for no vegetation, no matter how hard you try. However, what we know back then is that Egypt was the exact opposite. Egypt was located next to the Nile River. And what we know about the Nile River Valley is that it was one of the most fertile places in the entire known world. In fact, what you could say is that it's because of the Nile River, it's because of the water there, it's because of how fertile it was that Egypt was such a superpower. But what we see is that biblical scholars believe that after those plagues, 
the land around the Nile River would have been completely destroyed. That those plagues of locusts, of frogs, of blood, of all of those things would have completely destroyed the land, not only for years, they're estimating for decades. And what the Bible is trying to tell us is that it's illustrating this one point, that even if it looks like the best circumstance, or even if whatever is in front of you looks like the best situation, without God, it is only a place of death. And what the Bible is saying is that even those places that can seem so hopeless, that even those places that seem like the worst, that even those places that seem like they have no future with God, they can be the most fertile and fruitful that we have ever experienced. You know, a while back, I went to the George Washington uh, University College Life Group that we've had. And I was just there to see how they were doing, just to speak to them. And at the end, after we had done a lot of discussion, they asked the, the one question, right? How do I know what job I should do? Pastor Dan, what, what, how do I know if this is the right job? And so what I did was I acted like I got a phone call and I, and I left, right? No, but jokes aside, what I, I said the, the answer is actually really simple. Because what the Bible says is it doesn't tell you what job you should do. It doesn't say everyone on the right side should be a doctor, everyone on the left side should be a lawyer, everyone in the middle should be a CEO. It doesn't say anything like that. All it tells you to do is that you need to put God in the center of it. That's it. There are no further details about what job is best for you. It just says whatever job you do, the motivation, the center point, and the result should be the Lord. And if you do that, you will succeed. If you don't, then you will be led into destruction. And what I try to emphasize to them is that there's going to be a lot of voices that come, from, that come into your ear from all over the place. It's going to tell you to be a doctor. It's going to tell you to be a lawyer. It's going to tell you to be a CEO. It's going to tell you to do all of those different things. But you can be the most successful doctor or most successful CEO, but your life will be meaningless and you will have no joy if it is not centered upon the Lord. There will be no point that you can be as famous as you can possibly be, that you can be as rich as you can possibly be, but at the very summit, you will realize that it is meaningless. And we have seen this with the, most, with the richest man in the world, King Solomon. His most famous words, his thesis is, everything is meaningless. I had all the riches in the world. I had all the power that you could ask for. I did everything under the sun. But without God, it is meaningless. And yet what I also emphasize is that even if you're in a job that seems so menial, that even if you're in a job that seems like it lacks appreciation, that no one sees what you're doing, if it is centered around the Lord, man, you're going to bring so much fruit out of it that your life will change, that you will change the lives of others, that people will sing your praises because the Lord is going to do something mighty within your life as long as you center your life around the Lord. That is going to be the difference. It's not about what job is right for you. It's about whether you're willing to center your life around the Lord. 
And this, this is about every single facet of your life. It's not just about your job. It's about your relationships. It's going to be about your marriage. It's going to be about your family. It's going to be about your future. It's never going to be what detail is right. It's never going to be about where you need to go specifically. It's always going to be, am I willing to focus my life around the Lord? If you are, then God will bring fruit out of it. If you're not, then destruction will happen. You see, the best circumstance without God is simply death. And the worst circumstance with God is simply heaven. And here, all I want to do is just do two points of application. Church, the first is that manna isn't given to us. We need to go get it. The bread fell from heaven, but the Israelites were the one who needed to go up, to go out and go collect it. They need to go every single day. Why is this significant? Because in Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells us that the point of the bread is to teach us that we can only be sustained by God's word. You see, church, the only way that you will survive the wilderness is by going to the Lord daily, is by knowing the Bible, is by reading scripture, is by having a personal relationship with the Lord. It's by understanding the truths of the Bible and by having it within the very depths of your bones. That's how you survive the wilderness. It's not going to be on the back of somebody else. It's not going to be the back on a preacher or upon the mentor or upon another leader. It's going to be upon the very bones of, of that which you are made out of. It's going to be upon the relationship that you've built with the Lord over the years. It's going to be upon the daily going back to the Lord again and again through prayer and through reading of the Bible. And I'm not saying that you need to be a biblical scholar. But what I'm saying is that the Bible says it needs to be a daily habit. Look, if you only hear the Bible on Sundays, then it's going to be I'd say impossible for you to survive in the wilderness. And it's not going to take you 40 years. It's going to take you much longer to realize that. The way to have strength to endure is going to come from your personal relationship with God. The second point of application is that later in Exodus, we see that manna was collected individually but it was distributed as a community. What that means is that, yes, everyone's walk with the Lord is personal, it's individual, that God can speak to us in all different ways. I can't fathom the ways that God can really speak into your life because he may speak to me differently. There are people who who need to be woken up with earthquake and with thunder and lightning, and yet with other people, God approaches them with just a whisper. But our relationship with God may be personal, but we are meant to grow together. You see, what that means is that if your faith is only private and that you think, oh, my personal relationship with the Lord is only that I don't need to survive without a church, then what's going to happen is you will starve in the wilderness. 
Our growth as Christians starts from the Bible, but it extends into the community of believers. We need one another to talk to and to rely on and to get mentorship from. I've heard from a lot of people who've come up to me after the sermon and say, how do I really apply this in my life? How do I really get deep into this? How do I really understand this for myself? And the best way is going to be through one-on-one conversations with other brothers and sisters here where you ask them those questions. And you say, how is my life? This is how my life is going. This is where my faith life is. How, does you, how did you overcome this? How are you going through this? How can I struggle through this? How can I fight through this? What are some ways that you've overcome this? It's going to be through relationships. It's going to be through one-on-one talks. It's going to be through advice from other brothers and sisters that you're going to really learn, that you're going to really apply these different things, and that it will really grow in you. Those are the, the two points of application. And just the last thing I want to mention, church, is that what we know is that the wilderness here, it wasn't made in the very beginning. That God never mentions it, mentions it in Genesis 1. And what we know is that disease and suffering, they were not here from the very beginning. But what we see is that in John 11, it's one of, this, one of the famous stories of, of Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus, who's his friend. And he is weeping. And he is so angry and upset because even for Jesus, he is so upset and and angry and, and frustrated at the injustices and the evils of this world. And so he is crying because he knows that death is not a part of how life should have been. But here's the thing. We see that later for Jesus Christ that he uses the tomb. He uses sin. And he uses brokenness and he breaks those things and he brings great and glorious things from that. That he uses death to bring life. And that he is the God who is able to do that. You see, in Isaiah 35, it says that there's going to be a day when God changes the deserts into streams. He says that there's going to be a day when the wilderness it's going to blossom with flowers and with fruit and vegetation. Church, in this life, there will be brokenness, but God, he makes us a promise. And that promise is that whatever brokenness you are going through, that he will weave it to create a tapestry that is so much more beautiful than you could have ever imagined. He is the God who has led the Israelites out of Egypt. He is the God who has made a path for them in the Red Sea. Is he not a God also who will lead them through the wilderness? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for all that you have done. Lord, we pray for our hearts right now, they would be open and receptive to what you have said. I pray that...